Hi guys, welcome to Useful Idiots. Uh, Colin, uh, we're going to get started momentarily, just waiting for Aaron Mate to pop his head in. And uh, again, you can, of course, listen to Useful Idiots wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can um, find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash Useful Idiots. Please, we would urge you to, of course, subscribe. You can also support the show and get extended interviews and bonus content at usefulidiots.substacks.com. So we hope you will do that. And uh, Aaron is in the room. I'm going to make Aaron a moderator. And we are going to take our first call. Hi, Aaron. Hi. All right, here we go. Pedro, welcome. Uh, Good morning, Katie and Aaron. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, so, quick call to share some things I found uh, worth uh, sharing on, on Twitter. Uh, first thing, uh, yesterday Max Blumenthal was on a podcast called Rare Candy. He did like a, a one-hour interview. Is really worth listening everything. He discusses the current uh, Russian Ukraine, the complete story since the 1990s, really worth listening. Uh, So that was the first thing. The podcast is called Rare Candy, Rare Candy at Pod Pod One. I guess you guys know this. I don't know if you know. No, you know. Rare Candy, I'll write it down. Rare rare Candy Pod One. Sounds delicious. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the guy's name uh, is Glenn Rockney. Uh, okay. Just, just some Pedro, guy. Thank you. So what's your next comment or question? Yeah, uh, that was that was only the, the comment. The other comment was, I'm just sh- sharing some stuff I've, I found on Twitter that it's related to, to media. That was the first one. Uh, quick, uh, uh, second one is uh, ta, 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 a GOP congresswoman called Amy Tarkanian that in um, shared the clip of Lindsey Graham, the U.S. senator. Um, in, uh, yeah. You you got that? No, yeah, yeah, but you can please tell people what it said. Uh, I, I can play it if you want. It's just oh, okay. a, a one minute clip. In is uh, is actually rallying the troops. Is basically saying 2017 will be the year of the offensive. I can play just like 15 seconds or something if you want. It's okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. It's a great yeah. clip. Yeah. And just to explain it, so this is Lindsey Graham and John McCain and Amy Klobuchar visiting the Ukrainian troops on the front line in their proxy war against Russian-backed rebels in the Donbass. And this is what, this is in late 2016. Yes, uh, so the clip is one minute. I'm just going to play like 10 seconds and then stop and, and you'll see. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. So, yeah, so basically it's him, uh, John McCain, and the Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, basically. Uh, you guys can play this a bit later, better. And uh, that, uh, and that was basically uh, another thing. Uh, uh, 
you, you guys talk about the PBS and the Nazi uh, Bandera yeah, guy. Morning, yeah, Monday morning, yeah. Yeah, there was another thing, uh, another uh, thing I found on Twitter. It's, it's an American journalist called Wyatt Reed. Yeah. He, he shared a similar story, uh, the AP uh, doing kind of a feel-good kind of story regarding the Azov Battalion with child soldiers. You guys can also maybe check, if, you know, those feel-good stories. Yeah. The, so that that was uh, everything I wanted to share for today. Okay. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks for thanks that. So and thanks for that clip because it shows exactly what we were talking about on the main show, on the YouTube show today, is that this war did not start last week. And to prove it, you have Lindsey Graham and John McCain meeting with Ukrainian soldiers and talking about how they're going to go and get more support for them back in Washington because neocons like Lindsey Graham, who's now calling for assassinating Vladimir Putin and John McCain – have been using Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia. And that, that clip is a great example of it. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. M Michael, you are next. Hi, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, I just, you know, I, I, I want to just pose a question to you. And um, I think maybe Katie as well. I, I think uh, the three of us are sort of on the same page in terms of like the kind of historical context that led up to this uh event and that you know i mean i recognize that yes what russia did technically may be a war crime uh it may be technically a war of aggression right um and i feel like have the initial impulse to condemn them for you know what is a war crime you know hypothetically but i feel like if if it's an, in the context of dealing with the United States, which is essentially, as far as I can tell, like the closest thing to a rogue state that has ever existed. I mean, we're talking about a state that has been in, in a perpetual state of warfare for the last 20 years. And, you know, when you talk about like international law and war crimes, there's there's the expectation of some kind of reciprocity. Right. Whether and, and that goes to like whether you're talking about like laws inside of a country or customs or personal relationships like there has to be for, for, for law to be valid. There has to be some sort of reciprocal relationship. And it just seems to me that the United States never reciprocates its end of the bargain in terms of international law. And given the extensive history of the United States just ripping up, you know, international treaties, international law, international agreement. Could you make the case that what Russia did wasn't a war crime by invading Ukraine and that it was morally justified because, you know, they're basically in a conflict with a rogue state that doesn't respect and does not reciprocate international law? I think you raise a good question. It's one that many people have confronted me with because I've been calling the Russian invasion criminal and illegal. But the fact is, look, it's, you're only, I mean, I believe in the UN Charter, and the UN Charter says you're only allowed to use force in cases of self defense or in the face of an imminent invasion. And that wasn't the case here. There was still diplomacy going on. You can say maybe that you, the US never had, had any intention of allowing a peace deal in the Donbass. But I just, at the time, there was stuff happening. Biden was talking about meeting with Putin. And this fight was still inside Ukraine's sovereign borders. 
I agree Russia didn't start it. And I agree also that it's been used as, you know, U.S. officials openly admit, like Lindsey Graham and Adam Schiff, that they've used Ukraine to fight Russia and bog it down there. But does that mean that Russia had no other options? They had to launch an invasion that has caused over a million refugees and killed many people. I just can't I can't buy that argument. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, isn't it implicit in the UN Charter that, like, other countries will make a good faith effort to comply and to reciprocate their end of the bargain? I mean, mm. it just seems to me that with the United States, you know, all, you know, anything, any kind of agreement, implicit or explicit, about the expected behavior of nations is just thrown out the window. And they have such an extensive history. You know, it's it's almost like you know the police catching a a serial arsonist. You know, um, like would you would you you know? I mean, maybe in theory you should you should let the serial ar- arsonist out on bail, but like, I mean, is that really a good idea? I, I don't know. I just I think when you're dealing with the United States, it is a rogue state. The way that you know under the Bush regime, the way he used to describe North Korea and Iraq and Iran. It's like no, America is the true rogue state. So I don't see, I don't see that there's a problem with other countries breaking international law in their conflicts with the U.S. Because the U.S. never has any intention to, you know, argue in good faith, debate in good faith, or do anything in good faith. It's it's a, it's a psychotic state. It is psychotic. Normal I countries. Think, I'm sorry. I mean, go ahead. I personally hear what you're saying. I think that that doesn't make that doesn't determine whether or not another thing is a war crime. I think it's important to set up context. And for me, the most important thing here is setting up a context that leads to a peaceful resolution, um, leads to diplomacy, leads to negotiations. I think that so much of what the media is doing is an oversimplification of things that isn't just incorrect, but I think is dangerous and warmongering. But I don't, I personally really actually don't think that we have to kind of hand it to Putin here. I think, again, you can explain the way that the United States and NATO um, helped uh, create the situation in which we find ourselves. I think that, I personally think we're in a stronger moral position as an anti-war leftist if we acknowledge um, war crimes, if we condemn things and also still put things into context and show that we don't want World War Three, And I know that not everyone agrees with that, but that's definitely my position. Michael, well, I, thank, thank you Michael, for taking my call. I appreciate it. Yeah, Michael, I, I think you raise some really interesting points, and I certainly do not want to be a U.S. chauvinist who condemns people for fighting back when they have no other option. I guess my problem is I just can't buy that Putin had no other option. I just um, Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the stuff happened that we don't even know about yet, which is always a possibility. But I just, okay. have, I just, I just don't buy. I haven't seen a, I haven't seen a convincing argument that Putin ran out of options. Diplomacy was happening. He did have France and Germany on board. France and Germany were very opposed to Ukraine joining NATO. And I know this is not just about Ukraine and NATO. It's also about uh, the U.S. having offensive weapons inside other former Soviet states and the possibility of them placing there inside Ukraine. So it's, it's complicated, but I just, at least not yet. I just haven't seen the argument that Putin had no other options and that he, and that his only answer was to launch a cross border invasion that has destroyed parts of Ukraine and created refugees. I just haven't seen the argument for that yet, but I well, do just, think, I think, what do you, 
what what do you do when you're dealing with a psychotic state like America? I mean, that behaves psychotically, routinely. Well, you know, look, I mean, at, look at look at Iran. Look at Iran. Uh, Iran had their top general assassinated, and they carefully decided to launch a strike against the U.S. military base in Iraq. And they actually gave advance warnings so that they wouldn't kill people because they didn't want to elicit an even worse response. The, the question is, when you're dealing with a hegemon, you have to think about what the consequences are going to be, not just what you're entitled to do, but what, what, what are the consequences? The consequences yeah, for guess. Russia are a lot of suffering for not just Ukrainians, but Russian people too now. And I don't see, I don't know enough about Putin to know what his thinking was, but did he think about what the consequences would be? not just for Ukraine's, but for his own people too. And I think you have to take all that stuff into account. It's not just about what you're entitled to do. It's about what the consequences are. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking my call. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Okay. Rich. Rich yeah. Yeah. Hey. I, uh, well, I was calling with well, one thing that the, the last caller, which guys you don't understand is American exceptionalism that's what gives us the uh, right to do the things we do but anyway I, my call was about a, a tweet that um richard engel had put out about uh, around six thousand russians killed in the ukraine so far two two western officials tell nbc news about 5800 russians have been killed now that's 10 percent of what all the casualties in vietnam or the deaths in vietnam was fifty eight thousand. that's 10 percent that sounds a little bit like propaganda to me, but I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know what the numbers are. You don't really hear about it. A good rule of thumb during a war is just not to believe anything until you've seen convincing evidence with your own eyes, because there's so much war propaganda coming out right now on both sides. We've seen, you know, there's, there was an article in the New York Times a few days ago acknowledging that a lot of what the Ukrainian government has said is not to be fabricated. And I'm sure the same could be said for Russia, too. So. Yes, in terms of casualty numbers, uh, I you know the Russian toll that they say of their own people could be too low, and the Ukrainian toll of Russia's toll could be could be too high. It's it's hard to tell at this stage. And I was I was just making the point that that Michael uh, had said about being so or psychopathic. They're not psychopathic. It, it, they're it's rational decisions. It just it's not good decisions, but they're rational, self-interested decisions. It's probably what Putin thought. You know, can't have a client state in the Ukraine. How do you do that? Well, I, I think you laid out a pretty good argument. You destroy it and make it you know turn it to rubble and make it unusable. But at the same time, the United States has got a bunch of rational people sitting around saying, "Well, we need this objective. We need this objective." You know, Nordstrom might be an objective. That's what they're doing. I mean, I, it, you can't justify it, but they're rational. They're not. They're not psychotic or anything. They have very <laughs> rational reasons for what they're doing, whether they're right or wrong or moral or two different things. Is it possible to be a rational psychopath? Oh, yeah. I mean, look. I mean, look at our politicians. I mean, that is a group of people that can be the most corrupt people in the world, and nothing. I mean, it's it's become so normal. That nobody even nobody even blinks an eye when when you hear a scandal. I mean, just think of the scandals, scandal after scandal, and nothing. Nobody ever gets even when they go to prison. What happens? Well, they get out in a couple of years and they go back to the same life they had before. So, I yeah. it, it's a consequences. I think that's the whole thing. Uh, there are consequences. Well, you know, it's kind of like well, 
I'm not going to face any real trouble for it. Why not do it? You know? Yeah. Well, thanks, Rich. And is that a picture in your avatar of Howard Zinn? Howard Zinn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, like I said, I, we, I was telling Katie, I think, the last time, we, we really need him back. We need we need that kind of voice. Yeah. Well, we carry on the legacy. We all try to in our own way, right? Rich, thank you for the call. Masha, you are up. Hi, Katie and Aaron. Nice to speak to you Hi. again. Hi. Yeah. So um, I have I have a couple of big concerns, but first I'll address what Michael said about the uh, U.S. never reciprocating, and that was part of uh, Putin's speech in advance of this special operation, was that uh, the first point is that uh, U.S. is agreement incapable, right? That yeah. that there isn't really um, anything, like that it, it doesn't, doesn't matter how many times you sit down with whoever is up front uh, that that the U.S. is pushing, you know, into negotiations supposedly that there is nothing, uh, there's no teeth to any agreement. There's no one trying even to to live up to their promises, and and that's been proven kind of globally with the way that the the, uh, the kind of American regime has acted. And I think that something that Americans who understand their own exceptionalism should understand about the rest of the world is many cultures, including European ones, are still kind of quite traditional right like there are culturally ingrained concepts of honor so if the u.s is now globally considered agreement incapable uh that's that's bad like people will will behave that way and will understand that for longer than the the one week news cycle or less that is that is now kind of the the rigor uh in in the west or in america so um is that something that resonates Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my no, other big, yeah. yeah. So my it's hard. Other... I mean, like, look at the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, the yeah. U.S. constantly breaks its agreements, constantly sells out its own allies. And yeah, I yeah. Totally get, I totally get the Russian thinking that that you're dealing with someone that's impossible to trust, and so that yeah. requires drastic measures. I, I, I understand. Again, I, I can't endorse decisions like invading a sovereign country, but I certainly understand the thinking. Totally, and now the U.S. is buying uh, oil from from Iran and Venezuela, right? After after having uh, carried on this this overt uh, destabilization and and whatever, right? Uh, so it's just just a total hypocrisy continually. Um, anyway, but one of my big concerns uh, this this week, I guess, is the uh, the call for for foreigners for international brigades to be oh, formed exactly. inside of Ukraine. Yeah. And as someone who survived Yugoslavia at a time when the, the international brigades, uh, those were the killers. Like they were people who came from the West uh, who wanted to hunt humans. And that is that is just facts. Like there's no there's no way that that's going to go well for for the people who um, who are going over there. And there's no way that the civilians in Ukraine who, you know, I, I just like what kind of madness is that? And the fact that the U.S. and Canada have both opened up travel <laughs> to, you know, to civilians out of out of North America to go to, to Ukraine to sign up to fight against Russia. That what kind of insanity is that? Can anyone explain? It's the same insanity that let British citizens travel over to Libya to fight in a regime change war against Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. And then. One of them came back and committed out the Manchester bombing. And yeah. the same thing with Syria, too. Letting Syria 
become a haven for sectarian death squads and letting people from around the world come there to fight it in, in the regime change war against Syria. It's the same insanity now. And, um, there it's in, in Ukraine, it's, you know, it's neo-Nazis who are the main extremists who are going to be going over to help fight Ukraine, uh, help, help Ukraine fight Russia. Mm-hmm. And, the, and obviously the main consequences will be borne by Ukrainians and Russians. But then when these people go back to their home countries, they'll be, they'll be blow back there too. There, there's already been people arrested in the U S who trained in Ukraine with far right militias there. And they came back here to, to continue uh, their far right activity. And that's only going to get, I mean, it's very reasonable to fear that this will get exponentially worse as a result of this war. It's very scary. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's the, one of the most uh, frightening uh, phenomenon that I've, that I've observed. And then lastly, do you see any hope <laughs> uh, for a NATO pact uh, fragmentation, right? With um, there was a rally this weekend for France's left-wing leader, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, and he talked about uh, wanting to um, leave NATO stating that quote, uh, that warmongering U.S.-led military cartel is useless and creates tensions everywhere. Do you think that is that um, is that anything more than sort of like a populist sentiment that will be crushed, or do you see do you see hope that NATO will be um, sort of compromised and, and begin to fragment? I don't know enough about European politics to say. I do know that Germany's been very uncomfortable with the whole warmongering against Russia thing. They didn't want to commit to severing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and only got on board after Russia invaded. And they do not want to cut off uh, Russian energy imports because they rely on them. And if they cut them off, then the heating costs for their country are going to just be you know, um, unsustainable. And so yes. for their own political survival, I don't think they're going to be on board with the U S agenda, but whether that leads to, or how much that will impact NATO is, is hard to say. NATO is a pretty entrenched institution and the U S is, is the leader. And yeah, yeah. whenever someone tries to get independent, you know, things happen to them. Uh, the, the U S is very <laughs> influential and it can create problems for anybody who, who gets out of line. Mm-hmm. And with regards to uh, Nord Stream 2, this morning, uh, Germany's Scholz said that, quote, EU's energy needs cannot be secured without Russia and, and its imports. Germany has no plans to suspend them, end mm-hmm. quote. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm wondering if I'm truly seeing some kind of uh, turning of the tide or at least some kind of moderation to the response or or is it just kind of pure survival? Like what? What's... We'll see. We'll see. OK, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Masha. Mason. Hey, Mason. Hi. So I guess um, my question is kind of centered around the left right now. And like this whole situation that I've seen, at least on Twitter and on here, like the left is so fractured on this issue. So I guess I'm wondering like how like two weeks ago we had everybody together, you, Marianne, Brianna, everybody was like holding hands and it was kumbaya. And now everybody's arguing with each other on Twitter. So like, I guess I'm wondering why this has been such a divisive issue for the left and why is there not like a mainstream left-wing belief when it comes to Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it is that people are just so un, uh, miseducated on this issue. It's a very easy thing to 
to see in an oversimplified way where it's like you have a bad guy and then you have good guys and we have to defend the good guys and they're the underdog. And it's it's I understand why people see it that way. But I think the media has been so bad on this issue. Politicians have been so bad on this issue. I think, as Aaron has pointed out a lot before, Russiagate really helped set this up um, where people, you know, Russia is this kind of boogeyman, the go to enemy. Um, I think that also I actually think that the fact that there are the Ukrainians have been, you know, there's so much support for Ukrainians. No one cares when Yemenis are bombed, right? We never see those horrible photos of Yemenis who are starving. So uh, it's really been turned into a good guy versus bad guy story. And of course, the Ukrainians, I think that people, honestly, I think part of it is also racism, where people kind of think about wars in the Middle East, like as um, impossible quagmires in a way that they don't with this conflict. I think they think, oh, no, but these people are civilized. They have to be saved. Whereas people in other countries, they're just kind of a lost cause. Russia gate means Russia hate. Ooh, I like it. That's exactly what has happened. Russia gate normalized this demonization of everything Russian. And so made it very easy to see them as this diabolical state with no legitimate security interests and just uh, nefarious motives. And that, that was kind of part of the point of Russia gate. And it worked. So I look how many liberals and progressives fell for it. They still, they're still falling for it now. And also look, Putin's a chauvinist. He's not a very, if you listen to him, he's not a very pleasant person to listen to. I mean, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't be friends with him if I, if I had the opportunity, he's not my kind of guy, but, and so people are naturally turned off by chauvinism, but in the process they embrace, American chauvinism, which presupposes that we have the right to use Ukraine as cannon fodder, presupposes that we have the right to expand a hostile military alliance to Russia's borders, presupposes that we have the right to back a far-right coup in 2014 and fuel a proxy war there for eight years since. And by the way, ignore all the Ukrainians who suffer in that war, as we talked about on the show. So as much as we despise Russian chauvinism in the form of Putin, we are completely blind to our own chauvinism. And in fact, actually, you know, if I want to get really psychological, I would guess that part of our contempt for Putin chauvinism is really a reflection of our own discomfort with our own unacknowledged American chauvinism. I think another thing that we're seeing is this weird, like, disciplining of the left from uh, alleged leftists who like to say that they have the real leftist position. And yankees. <laughs> we've seen some pieces on this before. Mm-hmm. Um, this really scary stifling of all discussion as, oh, you're just, you're parroting Putin talking points from people who then, okay, you're parroting State Department talking points. I mean, if you want to reduce everything yeah. to that, like, we can play that game. But I really think, like, and that is honestly one of the reasons that I think it's uh, we should be honest about what Putin did. It's not just because mm-hmm. I think it's the right and honest thing to do, but I also think if we want to reach people, uh, yeah. that's more credible. Yeah, I think, I guess, like, the whole problem with it is we've been, like, we're usually, we talk about, like, people on the left are always, like, oh, we're the people who see things with nuance. Oh, we're open-minded. And then, like, when it comes to this, like, everybody just closed their ears and said, I'm right, you're wrong. Like, it was really bizarre, like, watching it all unfold. And, like, nobody was ready for it. Like, all these people on the left, like, if they saw that coming, it would have been completely yeah, nuance in my experience is usually code word for I'm going to take the sellout position, but I don't want to acknowledge that I'm 
selling out my principles. So I'm going to cloak it in the veil of nuance and that will help explain yeah, there's, it. There's, but. there's nuance trolling, um, nuance hawking, but I still think that we have nuance on that. Our position has nuance. I mean, you can have nuance without being a sellout. I do think it's true that that's often weaponized, but there is, I think some nuance that we can have. Um, We're the nuance. I, I agree. We represent nuance. I just don't like broadcasting because I just find the word so overused in the yeah. same way as like, Trauma as a right. term has been has been totally co-opted. So yes, I I totally believe that that the that the side that opposes the proxy war in Ukraine, but also doesn't support what Putin did. I think that's the real nuance. And yeah. this whole trend of like these articles that come out every two months saying what the left should do about right. China and what they should do about Syria. Anytime someone tells you what you should do as if you're a part of a cult, essentially, yeah. that should raise the alarm. And that's always from people who have the wrong position, but can't defend their position on the merits. Right. They have to try to pretend as if this is like the only uh, 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 reasonable leftist position to have. And right. They also have to pretend that there's something like a character flaw among the people who don't see that. Yes. While, by the way, never quoting the people they're attacking. You know, there's an yep. article in The Intercept which I don't know if you heard of The Intercept, yeah. everybody, but it's, it used to be this website that I could take seriously, but now it's just a self-parody. But anyway, it's, it, was a, it was by this guy, Roan Carey, who was a former editor at The Nation. I, I've worked with him. He was a supporter of the Syria Dirty War. Yeah. And such a supporter that he excluded all voices that were critical of the Syria Dirty War and only published apologists for it. Wait. Anyway, now he's back with the new piece, Attacking Tankies, a yeah. really stupid term. And uh, he doesn't quote a single person who he's attacking. On right. the left, who he says is whitewashing food because he can't because he the people he's attacking actually have real nuance. And so he just has to portray Smear. this cartoonish uh, portrayal of their position. Right. And then you have another piece if you want to find another. piece. Uh, it's called uh, We Must Confront Russian Propaganda, even when it comes from those who respect by this guy, George Mambio at Ugh. The Guardian. And he yeah. goes through and names people like Robert Fisk, who's not here to defend himself, uh, Cyrus, and um, and John Pilger, and says that those people are basically Putinist uh, uh, puppets. Again, yeah. it's really disgusting. Like, argue with them on the merits of what they're saying. So this is we're going to see a lot more of this, and we have to remember that when people just dismiss someone as a whatever ist. Like, that's often a bad sign. It's a sign that they can't actually engage in the substance of what they're, of, of what they're talking about. So they have to resort to that. So that except, you except, when Aaron, except when Aaron Maté refers to people as chauvinists, then, then that's legit. Everything else is off the table, everybody. But I can call everyone. It's, not table. it's true when it comes yeah. from, from Aaron. No, but like, but I guess I mean more like with last name, like Assadist, Putinist. Um, you know, I said the other day, I'm as much of a Putinist as, as I was like, a Saddamist, mm-hmm. but um, we have to really, they're, they're trying to do this. It's what Ty, Matt Taibbi refers to as the ick factor. You try to make people toxic. You try to make it so people are afraid to associate with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be wary of that because that's, we're seeing a lot of that. Absolutely. Mason, thanks for the call. Thanks for taking my question. Okay, we got time for revolution. Good morning. Hey, guys. Um, I wanted to ask about how you, or I asked 
a form of this question to you, Katie, last night with uh, with uh, Lee Camp, and uh, wanted to ask it maybe a little more substantively, um, while being as brief as I can. Um, what do you guys think about RussiaGate? I mean, obviously it was complete bullshit, and Aaron, you were on this from early on, Katie as well, and and um, was this an? I mean, the the Ukraine thing has kind of been in it you know, a progress since 2014 and the Maidan coup, and this has been escalating. I mean, you could go back even longer since, you know, 2008 uh, or six, whenever George W. Bush uh, started talking about bringing Ukraine into NATO, um, you know, which was a clear, clearly going to be provocative to, to Russia and to Putin. Um, and frankly goes against promises we made at the dissolution of, of the Soviet Union. Um, was Russia gave an op to get us here? I guess <laughs> maybe op is like a, the wrong word, but I mean, it was, it was plainly fabricated, plainly bullshit, and has like the results of getting us to a place where Americans, you know, have this distaste for Russia that's founded in, in BS and in pure crap. And I mean, is this intentional to drive us into this situation? And you know, I guess it was certainly intentional. It was, I mean, look to drive us into this specific situation. I have no idea. And maybe we'll find out one day, but it was certainly intentional in criminalizing any diplomacy with Russia that could have resolved the war in Ukraine that could have resolved the uh, issues with NATO expansion. Remember when Trump was a candidate, he made the entire bipartisan foreign policy establishment freak out when he was criticizing NATO. And he was also was talking about uh, reaching a peace uh, deal in Ukraine. And that's one of the things that Paul Manafort and his aide, Constant Kalimnik, who I've interviewed, talked about. And that elicited this huge freak out. If you read the Senate Intelligence Committee's reports about uh, the Russian investigation, they talk about what a threat this was to the U.S., that there was even discussion of a peace plan in the Donbass that basically would have been along the same lines as, as Minsk. And uh, so certainly elements of Russiagate were used to poison diplomacy between the U.S. and Russia, uh, were meant to promote using Ukraine as cannon fodder against Russia. Whether that was intentional, it was meant to drive us to this point. I mean, we'll, we'll find out one day when things are declassified. But I think now that's that's well, we, what we do know is Aaron, you often reference this is in the book Shattered. They say that basically the Clinton campaign decided right after she left, like over pizza in their Brooklyn headquarters that they were going to blame 2016 on Russia. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, before yeah, that, I, mean, yeah. Go I was going to say, and this is what I directly what I asked last night. And I'd just be curious your thoughts, Aaron, and if you had any follow up from last night, Katie, as well. Um, if Hillary had won, and I know this is hypothetical, but I think it's really interesting the game out. Would there still have been a Russia gate if if Hillary had won in twenty sixteen, and and would things be much different right now? Well, there wouldn't have been a Russia gate in the sense of an investigation of Trump for collusion. I mean, that was already going on by the time of the election. But if Hillary had won, I'm sure that investigation would have been dropped, or at least it would have continued until Trump started stopped criticizing NATO. <laughs> Maybe if Trump lost and then still insisted on criticizing <laughs> NATO, and if that was catching on in the U.S. public, 
then maybe the investigation would have been done, uh, would have been continued just to stigmatize that and, you know, make that an impossible thing to do in U.S. political life. But, yeah, if Hillary had won, things would have been a lot different. But, you know, Hillary might have taken us to war with Russia over Syria or Ukraine, too. So, you know, exactly. A war could have broken out even sooner than it did. So, you know, some people say that Trump delayed. Some people say that Trump delayed the inevitable, which um, is not something I would have believed a few weeks ago, but you know, that's, 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 it's possible. Who knows? The comment section is interesting in this space today. Uh, I had some comments on it, but I'll, I'll go and let other people speak. So. Yes. We, we avoid the comment section here at useful idiots. That's, that's our policy. We, we avoid the comment section. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Thank you. Kate. Kate. Hi. Um, I guess what I've been wondering about for a while is, you know, when when do sort of the anti-war protests start? And I kind of saw it as almost a lost cause to protest against the sanctions um, just because they seem, you know, I don't know, American people have become so overwhelmingly just habituated to sanctions on other countries. Um, but what I guess really made me sort of worry about this with a little more urgency um, is in, I saw a video of um, thousands of people marching in Chicago uh, yesterday yelling, close the sky. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, okay. you know, I guess I just I don't want it feels like almost we're hoping that Biden is sort of a somewhat sort sort of a voice of sanity and that he doesn't hasn't yet at least supported a no fly zone. Um, and I don't want us to, I guess, wait so long on the, it seems to me like protests are normally triggered by like, we find out there's an invasion or something, but I don't want us to wait so long on the anti-war protests that we can't influence Biden to at least stick with the, you know, not having a no fly zone, not directly starting world war three. And then, you know, by the time we have our anti-war protests, the, you know, the war's already on and we're building the nuclear war. So well, I guess I, how yeah. do you see how do you see sort of when when and how do you see sort of anti-war protests emerging do we need like a bernie or a corbin to start speaking up um and calling for them how does it happen well the good news is that not to sound glib but we didn't didn't matter with iraq so maybe I mean, I don't know what you think, Aaron. If things are different now, if we, if the, I think people are. I mean, they're not. They're not going to want boots on the ground. But um, I'm not sure how much the left. I guess we have to assume we have to f- do whatever we can. But has how much control we have in determining foreign policy? There are certain things that are just beyond the control of of us and things just happen in history. Anti-war movements just happen when they happen. Obama, I think did a great job in killing the anti-war movement in the U S that doesn't really exist right now, but who knows? I mean, look, uh, Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere rose up and elected Jean-Bertrand Aristide at a, after years of being ruled by a dictator, someone who came, from the ranks of the poor majority of the country. So they did the impossible thing. And so we can do something similar here, but it's just, you never know what's, when it's going to happen. Maybe it will happen when life gets hard for ordinary people here and our energy prices increase and 
inflation gets worse and food prices increase because we're cutting off a major supplier like Russia. Maybe that is what will do it. I don't know. And of course, food, but. Say it again, Kenny. And of course, feed was cooked, but yes. The, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to predict these things, but just know that things have happened in history at, at unexpected moments. And so, you know, all of us, it's all up to us individually, how we engage and, you know, whether we go out to protest or not, or whether we choose to organize a protest or not, you know, it will happen at some point, right. Or else we're in trouble. I also think that maybe there should be like an education. Um, I mean, we have to do some educating about what no fly zone would mean, because I think so many people have absolutely no idea what the hell that means, what that would mean. Oh, for sure. Like when the polls are asked, I don't think most Americans actually want the U.S. to go to war with Russia. Right. I think I think that, you know, like if you read the way these these poll questions are formulated, the wording is not very precise. So for people, it's like they see a question like, do you agree that people that that warplanes shouldn't fly in this area? Sure. Why not? Right. Why not? Of course. But they don't realize the 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 that would require having U.S. warplanes there to shoot down Russian jets. And if people knew that, I think the support for. I know fly zone would be a lot less. Yeah. I guess a related question to that is um, how quick do you think, I guess if, if a no fly zone, I don't know if the protesters and the media get their way and a no fly zone gets implemented, how quick does the escalation to a nuclear war look? Well, is there still time for then a, a peace movement to um, emerge? I guess I know I have seen people, you know, trying to argue for a, no fly zone, which I mean, I just use a crazy risk, even if there was some chance that, you know, it wouldn't escalate to nuclear war. Um, but talk about, you know, Vietnam and air combat there that, you know, I guess didn't lead to nuclear war, but obviously that wasn't anywhere near as close to Russia and there weren't, weren't like anti-aircraft, um, you know, batteries and stuff that might literally have to be um, taken down within Russia. Um or within Belarus. Um, and so I guess, I don't know, how quick is there time after that, like after the implementation of like a no-fly zone, if that, which we hope it doesn't somehow occurs, um, is there still time for us to do anything? Is there still time for anti-war activists to, influence, to stop a no-fly Yeah, influence the course I mean, of the there's war. always time, sure. Yeah, there's always time. There's always time. And maybe, I mean, one would hope if that happens that people would come out. Of course. Of course. I just hope we don't have the opportunity at least to stop a no-fly zone after one's already been imposed because that just is, that just means disaster, you know. A lot of possibilities. Look, part of the problem is the war is, you know, it's only a week in or just over a week in. And so there's a lot we don't know even about what's going on right now and a lot of unknowns and things that, we're just not going to be able to know for sure until they happen. There's so much uncertainty right now and we have to be okay, be able to accept that. that that's just how it is. That's what happens, unfortunately, you know, but it, it's a tough time. Okay. Thank, thank uh, you for the call. Just, thank I you. Was just, thank you. Yeah. It's a scary time, but we, we should just also know that the things we can't control, we can't control as you were saying, Aaron. That's right. Pete, you are up. And you have to hit the 
microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself if you are there. And if you're not, we'll move on in five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Hulkaroy. Okay. Hi, guys. Uh, I can finally unmute. Um, really admire you guys. Um, just to put it out there. And I guess I have a general question about NATO and the world politics, like the end game, right? Like the end game for NATO um, and how things will play out because the rest of NATO, um, not including the U.S., has been quiet. Um, well, Germany has been um, kind of opposed to um, the U Ukraine's integration into NATO, but they haven't really been very, what do you call it, loud in their, in their words, you know? Um, so, and this, this event, like right now, um, has been anticipated since 2008, apparently, according to the, um, documents released by WikiLeaks. And this is the quote from, um, Ambassador William Burns. And I can just put it in the chat if anyone else is interested, like that, um, there would be split that if potential integration of Ukraine would split um, U Ukraine and um, cause potential like civil war and it's happened and it was carried out by the US in 2014 so like what what's the end goal because we obviously don't want to go into war um, for Ukraine right we want to use them as a proxy as a play toy and that's really bad obviously but the end goal like well, what is the what is the U.S.'s goal, I guess, or the NATO in general? What do you guys think? I think the U.S. goal is to bog Russia down in an insurgency that will bleed it and cause it to sustain heavy losses, similar to what the U.S. did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, keep Ukraine as essentially as, as, as a tool for that. And keep open the option of being able to use Ukraine as a NATO military outpost, because that's so much of what this is about. That That's why the U.S. has been trying to bring Ukraine into NATO. It wants that option because it, it, if so, it can have the possibility of using Ukraine to stage troops and offensive weaponry, which puts it in a really militarily advantageous position over Russia. So I think that's the goal. And also just to protect, you know, Russia was demanding not just neutrality for Ukraine, but also it wanted the U.S. to roll back its offensive weapon systems in former Soviet states. It wanted to take, for example, uh, heavy weaponry, heavy U.S. weaponry out of Poland, which can hit Russia. And the U.S. is, is not going to allow that. They, they want to keep those weapons there. Now, imagine if Russia had offensive weaponry pointed at the U.S. in Canada or Mexico. The U.S. would not tolerate that either. Yeah. But since it's Russia trying to push back, we don't care, you know, and we don't want to negotiate over that. So yeah, I think, the Cuban Missile Crisis is a perfect example. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I think that's the end game is basically continue to use the region as a tool to military encircle Russia and sacrifice anybody who can be used as cannon fodder to achieve that goal. And right now that's Ukraine. Um, right. Uh, thank you for that. And I just, just a quick follow up. Um, this is still a developing story, but I was wondering if you guys, um, have it like knew about 
know about this point. Um, apparently, like um, some bio bio labs were discovered in um, in Odessa and Kiev, developing pathogens and potential um, bio weapons. So, like, what do you guys think about that? that or, I yeah. heard that. I just it's not something I can comment on until I've seen evidence, and we just got to be careful about claims. There's been Right. Both sides, both Russia and Ukraine have made claims that have been false. Ukraine's accused Russia of some crazy things. And now Russia is accusing Ukraine of crazy things. And, uh, you know, it could be true, but I just, uh, I haven't seen the evidence to uh, to weigh in on it either way yet. Uh, yeah, I, I did see some documents, but they were in, um, I think, uh, Ukrainian. So yeah, I, I guess I'll put it in the chat if anyone's interested, but thank you. Thank you. I mean, you think... You think yeah. if Russia had discovered bio labs that we'd, we'd have some visual evidence by now, and maybe we'll, if it's true, we'll get some. But in the absence of things like that, it's just documents. Documents are just are not enough to cut it. Right. Um. I'm, well, I'm not sure if this speaks. Like, I'm I'm still uh, doubtful about this myself. But uh, Sergey Lavrov, I think he spoke about this like today or y- yesterday um, about these bio labs. But again, yeah. So this is a you know, developing stories. So we have to wait a bit on that. Yeah. And look, it, it's not just the U S that lies. Russia lies too. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, they lie for their own propaganda purposes. And so, you know, not to say that they don't tell the truth sometimes, but again, I, I, you know, as I said, I, I'm reserving judgment. Right. Thank you guys. Thank you. Also another game of course is just enriching the arms industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Unmute yourself, please. And to do that, you click the microphone icon on the bottom of your screen. Anthony? Hi there. Good morning. Sorry about that. My first time. Okay. Welcome. Okay. So I just had a quick question. I'm not sure about the extent of your knowledge to of Russian domestic politics, but... Um, I firmly believe if, if Putin ha- wasn't there, someone else would have reacted similarly. So if you could just comment on perhaps like any opposition that might exist within Russia to his policy of invading the Ukraine or whether the establishment is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly united in, the, in that front. The poll number I saw from Russia, and I don't know how accurate it is, but if it is accurate, it said that Putin's approval rating has risen since he invaded. So... If that's accurate, then that's a reflection that he has support. Um, the war in the Donbass has been a big issue inside Russia for eight years, and people have been urging him to do this for a long time, and he's resisted it. So I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a strong base of popular support for it. But, you know, again, that's also – he's also been – the fact that Russia has been censoring stations, you know, taking, taking social media sites off of the air – that also suggests some anxiety too about Russian popular opinion and wanting to control it. But, okay. you know, I, I don't, as much as I talk about Russia, I, for me, my concern is how Russia is talked about in the U S in terms of internal Russian politics. It's not my area of expertise for that. Right. I rely on Stephen F. Cohen, who's no longer with us, but um, the, I'm not the, the most informed on that. Okay. And uh, finally, uh, what would you say, at this point in the war, would be the best response by the West? Like, best case scenario, what should they do at this point in time? Stop using Ukraine as cannon fodder. Recognize that Russia, as George Keenan did 20 years ago, 
as William Burns warned about in that cable that the last caller quoted, that Russia has legitimate security concerns in Ukraine and trying to turn a very divided country, very, very divided country into a NATO state is just suicide. It's crazy. It'd be just as crazy as trying to turn Canada or Mexico into a proxy of Russia. So stop the suicidal quest for a NATO proxy on Russia's borders and agree to neutrality for Ukraine, which is Russia's core demand. Okay. I don't, I don't like I don't like how they went about it, but their demand to me is reasonable. And it's if it had been entertained over the last decade, we could have avoided all this. And now it's come to this awful war. One other thing that I interviewed Yasha Levine, who's a Soviet uh, American immigrant, uh, and he one of the things that he pointed out, and I interviewed him about a bunch of stuff, including the Azov Battalion. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But one of the things that he pointed out was that he, like, he, you know, uh, Navalny would, he, he says, has similar positions on this to Putin. Um, and he did with um, Crimea, too. Yeah, if you look at Crimea, for example, you just could not exist within the, so, within, within the Russian political system if you didn't support taking Crimea. Everybody supported that. Yeah. Okay, D, thanks for the call. D, you're up. D, you there? You're unmuted, I see. So do you have a question? Okay, now you're muted. Can you can you talk? D? All right. Uh, we're going to take the next caller, but uh, if you want to come back in the, the queue, if we have time, we'll get to you. Okay, Anthony. Can you unmute yourself by hitting the... Um, Mic icon at the bottom right of your screen. Anthony. Okay. Not sure what's happening. We're going to take our next caller, Chris. Hi, Chris. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yep. Hey, so um, I was kind of thinking about the end game, and uh, it seems like uh, the NATO sort of globalist powers would want to see Putin turn out maybe a new political system in Russia. Um, And I don't understand how a lot of these tech companies or, um, I don't know, Western companies that operate in Russia rushing out and uh, basically deplatforming all, you know, everyday Russians. helps because Putin's going to eventually try to close off Russians from the rest of the internet um, as is. I don't know why getting out in front of it and antagonizing um, the West to everyday Russians is a good thing. I just was wondering what you guys think about that. Yeah. I think it's terrible. You're, you're talking about what America is doing or, or companies? Yeah, like, for instance, like Spotify and Netflix. Like, there's no yeah. reason for them to it's basically... Totally- it plays into Putin's hands, I feel like, because he's going to systematically try to do what China did with the Great Firewall. And, I mean, yeah. I guess they're trying to score political points, but 
right now we need to be reaching if this war is going to be won the way that western power wants it's going to be won in the minds of the russian people so yeah it's it's just sadism it's what they always do try to punish civilians so they turn against the governments that the u.s wants to overthrow and i saw one tweet yesterday from like a twitch streamer who's like yeah who is very opposed to the war and they were talking about how they lost all their income now that twitch has shut down operation in russia so someone who's a russian who's against the war a create a content creator on twitch now has lost their income because these tech companies want to you know rally behind the u.s flag and, and get on board with the sadism against the russian people it's there, there's it's just madness there's no it's just and i guess they feel as if that's in their interest to show that they're willing to toe the state line but it's you know it's the russian people who suffer it's awful yeah yeah and if, if this conflict keeps going on even if there's like a sort of a ceasefire but there's a ongoing insurgency at what point do these companies decide to to reopen the internet. I mean, if they're, if they're even able to, because the Kremlin's going to be trying to crack down on what Russians can access. Like at what point do they, I don't know, go back to normal. Great question. Great question. We will see. Yeah. Yeah. Totally obvious that, you know, this is not about ordinary Russians, uh, that, that the United States doesn't care about. If they did, they wouldn't be punishing them. It's just gross. As we heard, uh, when we reviewed earlier today with Adam Schiff, uh, you know, this is about crushing the economy. uh, So just inflicting as much pain as possible. And it's just so embarrassing. Uh, Imagine if we want that to happen to our country. Yeah, I mean. For our government's actions. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you for the call. We're entering the speed round because we only have a, about 15 minutes left. So thank you for the call. And Dave, you are up next. Hey, guys. Katie, Aaron, what's up? Very pleasure to finally speak to you. Fan of both of your work and everything. Uh, welcome to the speed round. Just like two, three questions I'd like to punch off. One, two. If you don't mind me asking um, the Colin app, I think it's really interesting. I, I feel like you know, there's this whole ecosystem of people that have joined the app. I'm just curious, like, why, how did that come about? Did Colin reach out to you guys? Are you getting paid to do this? And how do you feel about the experience so far? We do get paid to do it, and it's been a great experience so far. Uh, it's a way to interact with people in a way that's otherwise not available. You know, I've been I've been active for a while, but kind of insulated from my audience except for on Twitter, basically, or on Facebook. So this, I, I think it's great that we get to do this and interact with people. And it's a form of like, um, you know, I get t- I've gotten tips from people calling in and saying interesting stuff. And I've, I've learned stuff. And it's, you, you get to actually speak to people from around the world. So I'm sorry to sound like I'm doing an ad for Colin, but you kind of forced me into it, uh, Dan, with this question. But yeah, it's, uh, for, for me, it's been very cool so far. Yeah, I find I'm more of a newcomer compared to Aaron, but uh, I have my own show on here, and then we're doing this show, and I really like it. And um, cool. I like how many foreign like people in other countries and from other countries uh, call in. It's very cool. Cool. Well, just briefly, as someone who has followed you guys for years and is not on Twitter or Facebook, it's really wonderful to be able to be able to interact with you like in this way. So I just want to put a question that's more direct on the topic here. Um, 
I'll just lay, I have two questions. I'll just lay them both out. The first one is, would either of you guys endorse the position of doing nothing in terms of sanctions and militarily? I ask this because I feel like there's a lot of people who are, uh, you know, call it on the left or whatever, the anti-war position, who I feel like are basically coming right up to that point, being like, sanctions don't work. We shouldn't get involved militarily, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But no one will, or very, very few people will actually explicitly say the United States should do nothing. And then also in addition to that, I wanted to ask if you guys have an opinion on whether or not Zelensky actually has or had control over these far-right factions that were fighting in the Donbass region, and whether or not you think that there's uh, even a possible off-ramp for him to provide to the Ukrainians. The question of what should the U.S. do presupposes that the U.S. is not playing a major role in causing the crisis. So the answer to what the U.S. should do is the U.S. should stop its role in fueling the crisis. The U.S. has no moral authority to sanction anybody. If anybody should be sanctioned, it should be the U.S. for all the criminality it's conducted around the world for many years, including in Ukraine. I mean, where's the sanctions for backing a coup in 2014? Whatever you think about the government of that was overthrown and they were, were very corrupt, they were democratically elected. And Yanukovych, who was very corrupt, had all kinds of problems. He actually still had popular support. So where are the sanctions on the U.S. for backing that coup and then using Ukraine as cannon fodder? So absolutely, I oppose all sanctions. We have no right to impose them. We only have the obligation to stop our own behavior that is causing the, the conflict. And that is using Ukrainians as bullet stoppers in a proxy war against Russia. So the answer is not sanctions or sending weapons. It's dropping our quest to make Ukraine a NATO proxy and taking Russian requests seriously and negotiating in good faith. That's the only answer everywhere. Same with Iran. Like, even, you know, I asked Chomsky this once, like, is the premise of the Iran nuclear deal even fair, where the U.S. dropped sanctions and in exchange, Iran halted its nuclear weapons, or, or not its nuclear weapons, halted its nuclear program, because Iran didn't actually have a nuclear weapons program. And Chomsky says, oh, of course not. The premise is, is fake. What right does the U.S. have to sanction Iran? Iran should be sanctioning us for terrorizing Iran going back to the 1950s. And I, I, I have a similar attitude towards the U.S. and Ukraine. And the second question about Zelensky and the far right, I don't know if they're really under his control. They've been empowered since 2014 when the war broke out. Uh, and they kind of operate on their own, under their own volition. A great example of this, and I mentioned this on the YouTube show, there's an article up at the Gray Zone right now about how Zelensky has had to back down in the face of the neo-Nazi militias in Ukraine. And when he tried to confront them once, they told him to go away, and he backed down. So I don't really think he has much control over them. Great. Well, thanks for taking my question. And I'll just say, to put on the record, I've been asking everyone this explicit question of, would you endorse doing nothing? Um, like, I've asked Glenn Greenwald. I've asked Michael Tracy. And um, I haven't been able to get... Well, Aaron, you're the first person who has, I feel, taken the position of actually explicitly saying, no, the U.S. should do nothing. I'm not afraid to say that. And I think that, um, you know, in, in the where we are right now with the anti-war movement being completely dead, having voices that are not afraid to take that position is really important. So thanks, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Me too. I co-sign that. Thanks. And just to clarify, I'm not saying the U.S. should do nothing. I'm saying the U.S. should do something, which is stop fueling the war. That's right. what no, the U.S. should do. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Thank you, guys. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Okay. Mark, Morg. 
Hey, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to both of you. I've uh, followed you both for a long time. Um, you do good work. Um, just a kind of a random question. So, uh, obviously, the NATO encroachment and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline providing 80% of Europe's energy instead of the current 40 from Russia um, is is a factor, I'm sure. But I've also heard that uh, Crimea has a fresh water shortage issue and that there was some sort of like land bridge that was built by, <clears throat> I think, Ukraine. And that was providing fresh water to Crimea. But when Russia took it over, the Ukraine's blocked off or dammed off that uh, that that waterway. And so there was some projects by Russia to get fresh water in Crimea, but those have all failed. And so that's also, I've heard that is also a reason why Putin may be doing what he's doing. Have you heard about that at all? Or do you guys have yes. any thoughts on that? Yes. After Russia seized Crimea in 2014, as you say, uh, Ukraine dammed the North Crimean Canal, and uh, that cut off like 90% of Crimea's fresh water. And since then, I believe Russia has uh, has rectified that after they've um, uh, during this conflict. I think they I, I think they undammed the dam, uh, but I have to double check that. But yeah, that I'm sure I'm sure that that was a factor as well. Just wasn't sure if it was truthful at all i hadn't heard about it until i yeah. well i saw it on tiktok where responsible people get their news so yes you know i just looked it up so reuters uh february 26 russian troops destroy ukrainian dam that block water to crimea so oh, nice. yeah okay. yeah interesting yeah. all right well wonderful to talk to you both thanks thank you awesome. oh, hi katie <laughs> hi okay nancy All right. All right. Hey, um, yeah, my first time on Colin, so I for the delay. Um, very, very, very interesting discussion. Um, yeah, my, my question is, is pretty basic. Uh, I still read a lot of mainstream news. I still uh, listen to mainstream on television once in a while, ABC, NBC, etc. And over the weekend, on Saturday, uh, there was a an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal um, by uh, I'm probably going to mar um, mangle the pronunciation uh, Tunka Varadarajan, and um, in it he is quoting uh, a historian by the name of Robert Service. Uh, these people were both new to me, but Mr. Service had you know his his quotes. I thought were very interesting. He um, goes right into the strategic blunders that caused the Ukraine, Ukraine war. And the biggest one that he discusses uh, first, right off the bat, first paragraph, is uh, the um, uh, America's support for Kiev's right to pursue membership in NATO. And um, he goes into that and he goes into a lot of other historical things. He talks about the other strategic blunders he feels Mr. Putin made. Uh, of misjudging uh, the response. Um, but, but on the first point, um, it, it was very interesting that, you know, in a, you know, obviously a fairly conservative publication, but certainly mainstream, that this had a very prominent place. My, my question was sort of a media question. You know, very prominent place on the media, on the opinion page of, of the weekend edition. People, a lot of people read it. So, on Saturday, I just I mentioned to a friend. I said, "Well, 
you know, this is interesting because, you know, a lot of people really are just getting up to speed on on a lot of historical aspects of this conflict. I'm one of those people that uh, haven't been following everything very closely since 2014, I, I'm ashamed to say, but that's the reality. And so I kept thinking, all right, on the Sunday shows, clearly, uh, <laughs> clearly they're going to be talking about this. Uh, so I looked it up. It's, it's like really simple. I just Googled this North Atlantic Treaty Organization, this pact on November 10th that was signed. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it was like a really simple deal, uh, no problem. Um, and then from there, on November 10th, then after that, you know, you look, you, you read that, which judging from the brief history that Mr. Service outlines in this article, you know, even I would be pissed. I, I don't, I mean, I've never been to Russia, don't know anything really about Russian history in detail. I, I would have been pissed off. <laughs> and yep. then, and then comes um, a CBS news article that was right on the heels of this joint statement dated November 20th, 2021 of that the intelligence sources are saying, yeah, they're amassing troops on the ground November 30th. Yep. And so, so it's like, well, why wouldn't Anthony Blinken's all over the news shows on Sunday? Uh, every single one. I want to go back and forth. And what, what, what does it take to have one person just simply ask about, uh, you know, hey, Mr. Blinken, you know, how do you feel what you signed in November 10th? Could that have played a role in this response of amassing the troops? What, what does it take, do you think, to have that one, just one question is all I ask, just one. And maybe that would sort of um, fuel a more broad discussion. Um, yeah, well, you know, look, the, the, the facts you're raising there are just not allowed to be posed. You're not allowed to consider, was it smart and was it um, prudent to... In the face of Russian Russia's consistent demands that Ukraine be neutral, to sign more treaties with Ukraine up through November to uh, bring Ukraine into NATO, and uh, I, you just can't acknowledge that, you know. And 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 the fact that the fact that the Biden administration had all this intelligence, which turned out to be correct, that Russia was going to invade, and they still refuse to seriously negotiate the question of NATO membership makes this all the more criminal because they knew what Russia was doing. They were amassing forces. They knew it was a response to moves like signing this agreement with Ukraine back in November. And they still kept on and they let Ukraine be sacrificed for it. And and British intelligence also, apparently, according to at least according to the CBS article. OK, yeah. Sure. Huh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's like yeah. both intelligence sources, everyone's saying this. So I guess is there... Um, I mean, that's a fact. It was signed. There's ink on the page over there. Yeah. So again, it's like you can't a, talk a, about it. <laughs> you can't talk about it. <laughs> it, it. That's it's a fact, and that's why you can't talk about it. Well, does it in your experience? This is my final question. In your experience, even like say, you know, just I'm I'm just like you know out in the middle of nowhere here in the in the rural part of the USA. If I just write an email or a letter or something old fashioned, like a you know like a paper, like to put it on paper and mail it. Does it make any difference to to the uh, news organizations to consider just asking these simple a simple question like that? No, sometimes, it make no difference. sometimes, sometimes you never know who you might reach and you might influence. It's worth trying. Yeah, <laughs> especially and, and there's you know there are groups that try to organize efforts like fairness and accuracy in reporting fair.org. Yeah, they're they, great. 
they do stuff like that. So, you know, it's worth trying. Yeah. Why not? Well, I appreciate your efforts. Um, it's very, very, very interesting. And uh, um, I'm just glad you are, you're out there. And I thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Nancy. We appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. One more caller. Oh, yes. We have time for one. Well, you know what? Okay. Let's take two more calls because, Greg, I believe I spoke to you last night. So we'll, let's hear from someone else that we haven't heard from. So, Greg, go ahead. Good morning, folks. Um, I was just, I want to do a comment on, because I've been writing notes on what people have been saying and how, you know, what is the end goal for NATO? And my opinion on that is that there's never one goal. Of course, there's always profit involved, especially right now, power politics and just that. Another thing to keep in mind in regards to that is how rudimentary Russia's uh, nuclear response system is compared to the United States and how there was a, an event in the 1980s where um, there was a false alarm on the Russian system, but the officers were aware of the political situation going on in the world and didn't respond in the way that they were taught to, given the situation, because they said, this doesn't make any sense. But given the heightened tensions, if something happened like that. I don't, I don't know if the Russians could, uh, uh, or what would happen. And same goes for the nuclear or the, uh, the Cuban missile crisis. You know, there were people in a submarine and they wanted to, uh, they thought nuclear war was breaking out. And it was one officer who went to his grave, not telling anybody the secret that he was the one who stopped them from launching the, uh, missiles and, it's also a glimmer of hope to remember that, you know, there's people on the other end as well and they're normal and they have lives that they want to live. So, you know, as scary as, as it is, just remember that they're, everyone is human and that, uh, that can be a comforting thought that we all, you know, <laughs> don't want to die at least. That's right. And then people. Yep. And, um, the other thing I'd want to say is don't, in, in terms of the rhetoric coming from Putin and from Biden, don't trust in what you're hearing from them. Putin has, you know, spouted a lot off a lot of nationalistic rhetoric about, uh, you know, this. I don't know when he went on that that rant. I, I felt like there was a lot of unhinged rhetoric that mm -hmm. came out that I don't think he genuinely believes in, but I think is used, you know, just like our government uses spreading democracy and blah, blah, blah. Although they may genuinely believe that because they're Wilsonian and their beliefs, but I, I just don't take everything in good faith coming from politicians. Because Fair enough. That's a good approach. That's a good approach. <laughs> Greg, thank so you. It, we're going go, yep. to go to the next callers. Thank you. But I totally agree with your approach. Do not take these people, whether it's Putin or Biden on faith. And Vin, you are in. Hey, hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, I wonder, what do you think about these uh, discovered uh, shale gas reserves in Ukraine? And when you sort of uh, overlay the map of where they are and kind of look at uh, the Donbass and Luhansk and, the, and Crimea, does it make you wonder if that's kind of part of a motive here too? And would you be surprised if, if you know... Um, Putin did take control of these regions. Um, if you actually saw 
a lot of what goes on with developing those energy sources uh, making its way back pretty much towards Russia? I don't know anything about that, so I cannot speak to it. I'm sorry, but uh, oh, I'll look no into worries. it. Yeah, um, I'll look into I can it. Send you a link. Well, yeah, you can find. Yeah, it. sure. Send me a link on. There's a messaging function in Colin. You can send me a link there. No problem. All right, yeah, thanks, thank Michael. All right, let's take the last caller, which is going to be Damien. Hello, how you doing? Hi, Damien. How you doing? Great. This uh, first time, long time. I uh, really appreciate both of the work you guys do. Um, my question was, what what do you think, if any, effect the um, million ruble offer for uh, uh, – deserting Russian soldiers and the anonymous hacks will have uh, on, you know, any of this playing out. I don't know about that. So what's, what, what is this? There's a, there's a one uh, supposedly, I mean, I, uh, it's been reported from one source that I, you know, I watch on YouTube and then I looked at, I Googled it this morning. There's an offer of a million rubles to any Russian soldier that, that, uh, that, you know, uh, turns themselves in or whatever gives up their arms and says one million to to the Ukrainian government or Ukrainian soldiers. So you can, I like, I googled it. It's you know, it's being reported. Um, I heard it from Boa the Fifth Column initially. Uh, okay, well, I, I was wondering, you know, you know yeah. it's one of those things where it's it's actually not, you know, it's, it's actually a nonviolent way to maybe affect things. Is, yeah, is it possible to? have an effect with that do you think possibly possibly you know that's a that's that's a very specific dynamic and i i don't know um i i don't know much about the russian military the attitude of the forces and it's it's hard to know who to believe on that so i guess we'll see if if the offer is out there we'll see if it's effective right okay and then um do you know i mean I'm sure you've heard of like the anonymous hacking the TV stations and things like that. Um, do you do you, you see that having any effect, or is this all just you know who did not which TV stations inside Russia? Yeah, inside Russia, they've been you know playing like Russian or Ukrainian music and putting fields and Russian flags on the you know TV yeah. screen. From my understanding, yeah, um, like messing trying to keep the Ukrainians stuff up and take mm-hmm. you know Russian stuff down. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I didn't actually know that, but I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of that. Okay. Happen. Yeah. And then, um, and then the, I had a question regarding specifically for you, because uh, I was listening to uh, Katie's show yesterday with the Yes Men and Lee Camp, which was really great, and I appreciated the, uh, you know, her trying to, you know, bring that t- together. Um, and then, uh, which was, do you think things would be worse with Hillary? Uh, you know, have been, you know, being the, uh, you know, being the president for the last whatever four, potentially eight years, um, would things be worse there um, d- due to her hawkishness or would things be better because there wouldn't have been so much, you know, anti-Russian sentiment, you know, being ran around, you know, Russiagate and everything. Is that a question for me? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. That's a question. For that's you, a, look. They, they, that's they a talked question. about you last night. So that's I was a great. What you thought? That's a great that's question, and it's hard to predict, right? Because we can't go of back. Of course. Back. But uh, 
Yeah, I mean, because Russiagate was used as a tool against Trump, would it have been so prevalent? Would the anti-Russian sentiment have been so prevalent? I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't have. But yet also Hillary was a hawk who wanted to confront Russia. And uh, the people who launched the coup in Ukraine in 2014 would have been staying on in power in 2016. And, you know, as I talked about earlier, after Obama presided over the coup in Ukraine in 2014, everybody, including Biden, were telling him, you have to send more weapons to Ukraine to help them fight the Russian-backed rebels. And Obama said no. He said, I don't want to further inflame the proxy war. And he don't, doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to send U.S. weapons that end up in the hands of thugs. And right. He's referring to the neo-Nazis and the Azov Battalion. And so Biden was, was against Obama, but Obama stood his ground. And so had Hillary Clinton won in 2016... She immediately would have reversed Obama's policy and and oh. inflamed the proxy war. But also, do you know who actually uh, ended up reversing Obama's policy anyway? It was Trump. Because Trump came in and he was talking about making peace with Russia. But then he was being accused of being a Russian agent and being controlled by Vladimir Putin. And ultimately, Trump has no principles. He just wants to be liked. And he wants every, every, all his problems to go away. So he he backed down pretty quickly. And he sent those weapons to Ukraine that Obama refused to send. And so Trump, no matter what his intentions were, ended up ended up doing the exact same thing that I think Hillary would do anyway. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much, how much. And then look, and then when he tried to pa- and then when he paused those weapons briefly, he got impeached for it. <laughs> you know, so, right, 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 you know, right. It's it's okay. war is so war is so bipartisan that it's just I don't know if it makes a big difference who's 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 in charge. Well, I, I really appreciate you guys taking my call. Um, Katie, thank you for for the, uh, you know, the Lee Camp and Yes Men thing last Thanks. night. I thought that was great. Um, and, and then my, my, my quick last question to both of you is, so when do we get to go back to brunch? <laughs> I'm starving. I know, right? I'm like so hungry for brunch and mimosas, but I'm yeah. just joking, of course. But, uh, but yeah, thank, thank you guys both. I really appreciate you taking my call. Thank, thank you, Damien. And thanks right, everybody. Yeah. Thanks to everybody yeah. who called today. It was great to speak to you all. We really appreciate your interest and enthusiasm for the show. And yeah, Katie, any parting words? No, we'll just see you next week at 11 a.m. following our YouTube uh, Monday morning live stream. Awesome. It's a plan. Awesome. It's a plan. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye.